we have no time for short-term thinking in this election, and uh, we really want to try and get that point across to people, I think. For 25 years, Tim Gray has been working in environmental policy change. For the last nine years of that work, it's been as the Executive Director of Environmental Defence. As the Ontario election fast approaches, he's knee-deep in advocating alongside other nonprofits to keep parties and candidates aware of issues related to climate and community. Politicians, uh, especially maybe old, more old-fashioned ones, kind of think as environment sort of is over here. But I think you know those who understand these issues perhaps a bit better recognize that you need to look at every problem through an environmental lens. Today, Tim shares why the election window is such an important time to advocate for policy change and the message he's hoping to get across to candidates this cycle, plus the work that comes after election day. This June 2nd, Ontarians will vote on who will form our next provincial government. Tim Gray's work with environmental defense is one example of the important work nonprofits are doing alongside other organizations and grassroots groups to advocate on issues that are important to communities this election. Last episode, we spoke with Faye Johnstone about a first of its kind in Ontario coalition that's advocating for the 2S LGBTQ community. Make sure to check that out if you haven't already. And we'll still have more episodes on election-related advocacy coming. Today, we welcome Tim Gray of Environmental Defense. Let's dig in. So welcome, Tim, to the podcast. Could you take a moment to introduce yourself and your organization? Yes, my name is Tim Gray. I'm Executive Director of Environmental Defense. We're located mainly in Toronto, but we also have an office in Ottawa that works on some of our federal issues. We're a national environmental organization that specializes in connecting people with decision makers to ensure that we protect Canada's environment. And it's great to be here. Great. Thanks so much. Well, it's great to have you here. We've got lots to talk about today. My first question, as we think about the Ontario election, why is it important for your nonprofit to engage this election? Yeah, it's really important because, as we know, we're facing you know twin crises of climate change and biodiversity loss around the world, and no less so here in Ontario. I think it's really important that people focus on you know, not just what's going to happen at the ballot box, you know, in this coming election, but what does that mean for them uh, going forward for the next four years, uh, given these twin crises? And I think people really need to ask themselves, who is best going to be able to tackle these issues in a way that is sensitive to the needs of Ontario citizens, positions us well to be successful and prosperous moving forward, creating jobs and creating a better life for people, but doing so in a way that puts us ahead of these crises and addresses them rather than contributes to them. So we have no time for short-term thinking in this election, and we really want to try and get that point across to people, I think. 
Yeah, that's a great point about thinking as short-term thinking is not going to get us there. And we, even though I know for election cycles and for politicians, sometimes thinking that the focus is on their getting elected and then getting into whether it's cabinet or working on a mandate. So that's an interesting point that we have to think long-term and hopefully folks who really are invested in, in the province are thinking that too. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that's, that's a really good point is that, you know, the, the people who are going to the polls in some ways have more of a luxury to think longer term about who they want to represent them and what kind of policies they'd like to see in place than uh, some of the people they actually elect. You know, I think we all know about the the pressures and and realities that, are, that face cabinet ministers or uh, members of provincial parliament. And quite often, it's very hard for them to think uh, you know, beyond the next uh, budget cycle or uh, you know, definitely beyond the next election. But as voters, I mean, you can really think, okay, like who's, who's promising here to do something that is going to make the, the province better at the end of that cycle? And you know, who do I therefore want to vote for? And what do you think in terms of the nonprofit sector and environmental organizations or even, you know, allies in the sector? Why is it important for that collective work to be done in the sector? Yeah, I mean, we have less uh, institutional or structural power than a lot of other influencers in society. I mean, you think of uh, you know big business and others who will engage, you know, not just during the election cycle, of course, like right now when we're about to head towards the polls, but are continuously present at Queen's Park in the form of lobbying or in the media through advertising or social influencers or everything else that money can buy you. So I think for the non-for-profit sector, if we want to reach people, that we want to have a voice that is going to be meaningful and impactful, then we need to work together. We need to collaborate at this time if we want to have a coherent voice that breaks through that noise, that paid noise, <laughs> and, and gets us to a place where people are able to receive the information that we're generating and, and make uh, wise decisions about you know, what they want to vote for. And when you think about that collective work, for example, one of the campaigns you're working on is yours to protect. So uh, for yours to protect, what are the goals and who is involved? Yes. Yeah, so the Yours to Protect program uh, started a few years ago, and it was really in recognition that the Ontario government was in you know, the process of really dismantling a lot of the environmental protection that had been brought into play over the last 30 years in Ontario and that we really needed to you know, kind of go to ground to organize at a local level against some of the impacts and some of those decisions that were being made. So there are community groups uh, from one end of the province to the other that are within this network. Uh, we have a, a steering committee that uh, is made up of more engaged representatives from those community organizations. And then um, we have ongoing webinars, regionally focused webinars, regionally focused meetings to tackle particular issues that come up or uh, broader policy issues that might be being pursued at a region by region basis, such as currently right now, each of the regions in Southern Ontario has to come up with their own municipal plan. You know, they have to do that every five years. So that's obviously a key decision point around issues uh, related to how the city is going to grow. Is it going to sprawl outward and gobble up farmland and do so in a way that 
doesn't support transit and creates low density, expensive housing, or is it going to do something different? You know, we're going to build more livable communities based on transit and, and uh, individual mobility and proximity to workplaces and services and lower taxes and all those good things. So um, it's really important to have a, a network model apply to uh, those challenges. Because an organization like ours, for example, you know, we have the, the capacity and, and I guess the, the staff depth to have planning specialists, lawyers working for us that perhaps a smaller group in one of these communities just would never be able to have the resources for. But they have the personal connections. They're the ones who know the city councillors. They know the mayor. They know the regional media. They know what happened on that street when that decision was made three years ago, and and you know can bring that story to the forefront. So the com- you know the combination of having provincial level expert capacity, which we might have in environmental defense, and local on the ground knowledge and organizing power is is quite effective in making change. And you know we've seen some really uh, exciting results from this work that we've done together. I think that's an important point too. When you think about provincially, we could, there's obviously policy change happening at that sort of ministerial level, but that often the, what, what you see is on the ground locally or regionally too, and where there can be impact, but also potential for change. And so I'm wondering, as you mentioned, with an organization that is more well-resourced, and we know that half of the nonprofit sector in Ontario is volunteer-run, organizations that are run uh, by volunteers only, so without those resources. So how do you kind of help to mobilize maybe smaller organizations or grassroots groups, and how do you kind of enfold them into a larger collective? Generally, what we can offer most of the time is is expertise and advice. Occasionally, we actually have some money that we can transfer as well. But what you know, what we found is that you know the volunteers that are operating at those local level, or in some cases, paid staff if the organizations are regional and a little bit larger, is that you know they bring so much energy to bear and and so much of that local knowledge of how things have worked and and how things are working. And uh, you know a real knowledge of of how to track down decision makers and you know, bring information to attention to them. You know, for example, we worked um, very closely with uh, of organizations in the Ajax Pickering area when the provincial government was steadfastly determined to fill in provincially significant coastal wetland right along the Great Lakes there in Lower Dufferin's Creek to build an Amazon warehouse. And in fact, they went to the legislature twice to, to force that you know, previously illegal <laughs> development into that wetland. And you know, we were really working that at a provincial level and in the courts with our partners but you know the people that really made a difference on the ground were those uh, local folks. Can you imagine after the issue had become that toxic, you're building your warehouse in a community where everyone in the community is not very welcoming it's, to you? It's, yeah, not, it's not a great, it. not a great business case. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Even if it is going to be, you know, that job creation model yeah. or argument. Yeah. No, yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. How do you see that in terms of collective work? And how do you, even when there, it takes, it's a long game, it takes a long time. How do you keep up that motivation to keep going? I think the local wins are particularly, and they're always important because uh, it makes progress in environmental issues real to people in the places that they, they live and work in every day. 
but they're particularly important when you have a government uh, in power that has been deeply regressive at a policy or legislative level, because that is the place where, you know, if they're not careful, if they've been a little bit sloppy and how they've changed the rules, is that you can really figure out how to get around those changes and still accomplish good things at that local level. And I was mentioning the planning work that um, has been underway in Hamilton and Halton and the other regions. And in both of those cases, by working together at the community level, us and and local organizations like Environment Hamilton and Stop Sparrow Halton, we were actually able to move the city councils or the regional councils of city in Hamilton and regional in Halton to adopt a zero hectare growth plan, concentrate all of their development inside of the city. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, uh, as you mentioned that, that's my neighborhood, Halton region. That's where I live. And so, yeah, and seeing that on the ground is getting my my local updates from council. It is really exciting to see that and the connection between local and also provincial and what that in other regions to learning from other regions is really exciting. So that's a, a great example. I'm wondering for this election, Tim, I'm seeing lots of examples in the environmental sector of coalitions. So for example, we've seen the launch of the Ontario Climate Emergency Campaign, which isn't just environmental nonprofits, it's also other organizations in the sector, such as the Workers Action Center. That's a really exciting mm-hmm. development to see that mm-hmm. sort of cross-sector or cross-subsector, as we call it at ONN. So I wonder if you can speak to that in terms of how that those kind of that coalition building comes together. Yeah, that is important as well. You obviously want to build as many coalitions as you can, depending on the issue. You know, when the previous government was in power, um, we built a, a coalition called the Clean Economy Alliance, and that was industry, labor, and environmental community. And we were working on helping design the, the cap and trade program. It was like a, a different time when you could actually have business, labor, and <laughs> environs working together days. to yeah. <laughs> uh, to like develop a you know a reasonable and functional um, emission reduction plan that would recycle revenue into further reductions. Remember the good old days. Yeah. So that was obviously very powerful. And actually, we you know we heard a story from um, the premier's staff um, that the day that the cap and trade legislation was introduced into the legislature, of course, the opposition was standing up saying, this is terrible, you know, it's going to shut down the economy. And she was able to hold up the press release that we'd put out as a coalition that morning with all these uh, large emitters from the business community and the labor unions who worked in those big emitters and the environmental organizations, you know, saying this is, you know, a great thing. We really want to see this move ahead. And I mean, what's the opposition going to say about that, right? Like, <laughs> it's just really hard. So those things can make Pretty a huge difference in, in moving you know, public policy along. And of course, in, in the election period, you know, being able to reach across or, or among different organizations and and have a similar message around what people should be thinking about as they go to the polls is uh, is really, really critical. I think it's an interesting point too. When you look at the sector and the different subsectors, I don't think all sectors either are ready or do this kind of coalition building the way that I see environmental organizations do. Now, to be fair, I think there's been a long, t- longer time in terms of that collective work and perhaps building relationships. But I wonder, are there any specific drivers, do you think, for the environmental sector that makes it maybe easier or a better environment or more enabling to do this work together? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, we have uh, worked towards doing more of this. You know, I think that uh, 
you know, strangely enough that the level of uh, cooperation, collaboration around the political cycle, the electoral cycle, has increased markedly since the attacks by the, the Harper era government on charities and trying to, you know, shut them down for being too, you know, political, political as in being involved in public policy, not too political as in being partisan. And I think as a result, you know, people really did dig into the rules that guide charities and non-for-profits and, and it started a conversation about, well, actually, we can do this stuff. We should be doing this stuff. In fact, we're being a bit negligent by not being more aware of uh, our role in decision making by the public when they go to the polls. And I saw a lot more collaboration starting during that time. And for example, for the, as part of you know, the kind of policy arm of our Yours to Protect work is that we have something called the Priorities Group, which is the, most of the larger environmental organizations. And we start about a year and a half before every election and sit down and think about like, well, what are the, the policy recommendations that we really feel that we would like to put in front of parties? And then you know, we finish that last fall. And then we go through a whole series of meetings with all the political parties trying to influence what they're going to put on their platform based on the information that we have. And, and they don't. I mean, if you've ever spent any time working with uh, party platform committees, I mean, they're, they're not exactly policy experts usually, right? It's, they're mostly thinking about, okay, what can we put in the window so that we can get reelected? So it's a really great time to go in there and say, you know, if you're interested in doing something that's meaningful on the environment front, here's a bunch of things that, that would be, and here's why, and here's what, they would, what the consequences would be, what, here's what the costs would be. And it's, it's a great opportunity to uh, inform the people who are making those decisions. And then we go from there to ask a series of questions to the parties based on those, those platform requests that we've had and uh, measure their commitment against them. And then we'll be publishing that in the next 10 days or so, so that people can know, you know, which of these ideas are being picked up by the parties. And, you know, if you care about that, then you can make, help make your decision about which of the parties you'd like to vote for. You mentioned a couple of things there, Tim, that I want to touch on. And in terms of that lead time of how much time really it does take, you mentioned a year and a half. And I mm -hmm. think that can be eye-opening because it's that's a long time to be preparing mm -hmm. and meeting with folks who would be writing party platforms. I think this election for 2022 has been a much shorter um, time frame. I think for a lot of organizations, they're finding organizing has been difficult. And some of those factors could include some of the new paid advertising rules in Ontario, which mm -hmm. are making that more challenging. But I think it's great to hear of an example that really at that long-term thinking, it also takes long-term planning to do it. Even if it feels like the election is far away, it's still really useful to get started on that work sooner rather than later. Absolutely. And I think you need that time if you're going to be doing something that's meaningful on a collaborative basis so that you can actually hash out what you want to ask. You can't ask for everything. So there has to be some process of winnowing down, you know, the things that you're going to put as priorities uh, into your request for the, and, and into the conversation with the parties. So what's one thing that you want provincial party leaders and candidates to know for this election? I mean, I think if I had to say one, it's that, you know, you need to look at the future of Ontario through an environment lens. And environment, I think, in this day and age means biodiversity, conservation, and, and climate change. Some of these uh, changes are locked in, 
and therefore we're going to have to figure out how to adapt to them. But the world, if it's to survive, if our civilization is to survive, will make uh, a transition towards a cleaner economy. And so what does that mean for a place like Ontario, which, you know, is, you know, even as a, even as a province, it would be a fair-sized country, its economy and the people who live here. What does that mean for us economically and socially? Um, are we likely to be successful if we pretend that these changes aren't coming? And is gobbling up the best remaining farmland in Canada and some of the best farmland in the world that surrounds our cities in southern Ontario, does that make sense in a world of growing food scarcity and growing food prices, increasing transportation costs? Or would we be better to preserve that farmland for local food security, greater economic diversity, mitigation of climate impacts such as flooding and from big rain events? Or should we pave it all over and have to get to all those places in individual cars instead of by public transit? So a lot of these things all come together on, you know, through a lens of almost every problem that we face in, 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 our, in our society can be looked at first through an environmental lens. You know, uh, quite often I think politicians, uh, especially maybe old, old, more old-fashioned ones, kind of think as environment sort of is over here, right? Like there's all the things you need to do that are about the environment and society, or environment, you know, society and the economy. And then if you've got time and some money, then you just think about like the environment over here. But it's not necessary. You can always leave it to later. But I think you know those who understand these issues perhaps a bit better recognize that you need to look at every problem through an environmental lens. So it's not thinking about the future. Yeah. And I've heard that very recently, perhaps in the car with my partner, about working on <laughs> current problems and thinking about or addressing current problems and thinking about more environmental protections, you know, in the longer term, because we have immediate crises like especially, you know, food prices increasing, for example, and housing affordability and things like that. But I do think you're right. And the lens needs to be there first in terms of environmental impact and what do we want to be to see. I think we talk a lot about thriving communities, folks who are healthy and inclusive communities, and that has to in involve uh, environmental uh, focus as well. So last question for you, in terms of plans post-election, you've got all these great coalitions that you're part of, a lot of work going, to, going on right now. What happens after June 2nd? Yes, I mean, obviously, we'll have to evaluate, you know, who forms the, the next government. But if you, you know, if we see a, a government come into power that has made significant commitments to develop new environmentally focused policy in, in you know, those areas we discussed today, then a significant amount of resources will be needed to focus around supporting you know, those changes, making sure that they weren't hollow promises, you know, all the things that need to be done to um, move those issues through Queen's Park. If we end up with a government that is, you know, say, doubling down on some of the more aggressive things that have happened over the last number of years, I really do think that that will require an even deeper pivot to the local level and a focus on long-term organizing and uh, really trying to do what is possible to secure outcomes which are within the decision-making authority of municipalities, for example, those which are within the authority uh, to influence or decide of the federal government. 
And also for ones that are within the decision-making ability of the provincial government, if they're deeply regressive at a local level, just make it so politically unpalatable, even outside of an election cycle, that you can stop them from happening. And, you know, we have done that sometimes as well. Obviously, the preferred position would be to be in a place where, you know, the parties all make commitments to do meaningful things to uh, address some of these problems that we face in the province and that we'd be working collaboratively with them to you know bring the public to the decisions to the progress you know to the outcomes but we'll have to wait and see what you know what the outcome of the election is and for these organizations having uh, worked together for a more specific or time specific purpose how can they continue this relationship building and their work together yeah, I think they will. I know that for us and many of the groups that we have worked with, you know, the last uh, few years have been in some ways a, a real rediscovery of some, you know, perhaps, you know, maybe not completely forgotten, but maybe rusty tools. You know, if you think you know, 20, 30 years ago when the environmental movement might have been in its kind of very nascent stages and, and we had very little uh, connection with makers, decision makers, the environmental movement was considered very marginal in, say, 1970 or something. Almost all of the activity was really at that grassroots community organizing level, because that's the only place we could work. No one would let us in the room to have a conversation with government. Well, we're, you know, the last four years in Ontario have been kind of a return to that. You know, I had some very early meetings with cabinet ministers in, in the current government, and you know, they were very clear that, you know, we would be having very limited influence or very limited conversation with them and that they were not interested in our perspective. So, you know, that's a pretty clear signal that you really need to think about other ways of um, getting your message across. And in some ways it's healthy, you know, when, when, you know uh, whenever there's a crisis, there's opportunity. And I think uh, we will continue, uh, all of us, to invest in, in that new opportunity. And I appreciate that even as a more established movement, that it's not that that, uh, I guess, the attention paid to a recognition continues. It does ebb and flow according to, I guess, the government of the day and what they're paying attention to. I appreciate that, especially we're having a conversation with Faye Johnstone, uh, who's leading a coalition for Queer Vote Ontario. And she was speaking to the fact that they, she calls it sort of a baby sector in terms of 2S LGBTQI plus organizations really coming together for this election. And it's new for them. So they're really starting to build the movement, uh, not the movement itself, but I think the movement in terms of provincial election advocacy. So it's good to hear though that it does, there is more learnings that can be made. They can build on those relationships. And it's not that it's going to be perfect the first time and they'll learn as they go. Absolutely. You know, you got to you got to get your feet wet before you can figure out how to swim. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Tim. It was such a great conversation. Really appreciate the experiences that you've shared, the examples, I think, organizations and nonprofits across Ontario. I think they're eager to work together, but it's great to hear some of the examples of how it can be done, especially during an election period. Thanks so much. Well, you know, thanks for having me and best of luck for everyone who's uh, working on this election. 
Thanks so much for joining the second episode of our special Ontario election coverage. In the coming episodes, we'll bring you more of the amazing folks working to bring issues that matter to nonprofits to election 2022. To make sure you know when our next conversation goes live, please subscribe to the show. And if you enjoyed it, please feel free to rate and share with your friends, family, and network. This has been Digging In with ONN.